Taraka. And to, today I have uh, four guests with, with me to talk about just in general diversity in, uh, in dentistry. You know, so I want to start off with Dr. Carrie uh, Cunningham. Dr. Cunningham, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, my name is Carrie Cunningham. I'm a board certified pediatric dentist and I practice in Northeast Ohio. I reside just outside of Cleveland and uh, am a faculty member at Case Western Reserve University, as well as a private practitioner in my hometown of Euclid, Ohio. And then we have Dr. Gary Dennis. Greetings and salutations. As always. <laughs> uh oh, my, my screen. Okay. Yes, this is Dr. Uh, Gary Dennis. Um, I've been on here several times. Uh, I'm an endodontist in Houston and a two time Howard graduate. There you go. And then we have Dr. John Poe. Hi, uh, this is John Poe. I am currently a periodontal implant surgery uh, resident at the University of Pittsburgh, having uh, previously done a dental anesthesia residency. Uh, in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm also a Howard Dental alum. And then, last but not least, Dr. Kyle Dumpert. Kyle Dumpert, uh, co-host, been here several times, uh, general practiced in Bedford, Pennsylvania, small town, and uh, happy to be back. All right, so, um, and we might be waiting for other people to come on, but we wanted to just, you know, uh, get together and just talk about diversity. You know, uh, the one thing about dentistry is it's not, it's still it's 2020, but when you look at the the field of dentistry, you don't see much diversity. And I mean, I know the ADA has been talking about it for a very long time, and we've been trying to figure out what we can do, right? So I figured with everything that's happened in this world, let's go ahead and sit down and talk to uh, this panel. And, and just get an idea of what diversity looks like, what we've been through, how we can, how we see diversity and what we could possibly do to improve anything in, in dentistry when it comes to diversity, uh, minorities, uh, inclusion, and so forth, right? So um, let's talk about the, the numbers. When it comes to the population, and we'll just use this one, uh, African Americans make up about 12% of the population in the U.S., but only represent about, what, 3 to 4% of uh, dentists are represented uh, represented by African Americans. So let's talk about that and see what we've seen. And, and we know that I want to say Howard University actually uh, puts out more uh, African American dentists than any other school. I think Meharry's next. And Dr. Dennis and Dr. Poe, I believe you guys went to Howard, right? Yes, correct. So, so again, with that being said, like, what are some things that we could talk about? I know Pittsburgh, for example. In my class, 2009 uh, class, there was only three uh, black students. There was only three uh, Hispanics. There was one Native American, and uh, yeah, and I think that was it. So again, so, that was, you know, that's something that, and this is a class of 80. All right. So at uh at Howard, I'm gonna uh speak uh, specifically to the class that uh, John and I uh, were in. We were we were actually classmates um in our class we had our, it was very diverse in our class but it was also um at that time they had really been trying to increase diversity in uh howard university student body so i'd say probably about only 25 percent of our class were uh were black males and about 50 percent of our class were Black students, and when I say black, I'm talking about <clears throat> African, Afro Caribbean, 
African-American. The other half of our class were, um, there were a lot of Indian students. There were a lot of Pakistani students. We had some Hispanic students. We had some white students. We had some Asian students. Uh, So it was, it was pretty diverse um, as far as that, which is interesting considering um, that you said that Howard University does produce the majority of uh, black dentists in the United States. I know John wants a, a piggyback on. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think um, we, you know we saw a great deal of of diversity, uh, you know, and I think that there was a, an excessive uh, push, an extensive push, rather, um, by our dean at the time uh, to have a, a greater uh, diversity and kind of uh, have that have that inclusive environment. Uh, Howard and Meharry, to this day, uh, the two historical black universities, despite there now being 60 dental schools in the country, still produce over 58% of all uh, African-American dentists in the country. Um, being uh, in Pitt's uh, program now, uh, you know, there's typically on average one to three um, students of, of African-American descent or African, African-American descent. Um, so you know, there's then we know what the numbers are. I think that uh, starting earlier, it's a, it becomes a, a war of attrition. If students aren't at the university level, then they're not going to be at the doctoral level, and so you have to have a strong presence starting from middle school and high school to then pipeline into those those settings. Okay, John, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that most African Americans apply to Howard then? Why don't we diversify and just go to other schools? So I mean, any, anybody can answer this question, by the way. Just um, I think I think I think the desire is there. Uh, there's funding. What? Desire to do what? To, the, the desire just to have the opportunity, regardless of of the of the presence okay. uh, and where where it will be had. I think that there is a historical nature. I think that the um, that the it's it's kind of a known. To some degree, a known entity that that it's more that, that you know you want to apply to where you're going to get in, and so you know I think a number of us apply to a multitude of institutions where you know you're going to go where you get accepted, and so I think that uh, potentially you know different you know I know at the university at least on the medical school side I know that that people from um, Ivy League institutions actually are given extra points in their package, in their application package. And so, you know, and students from HBCUs are actually put in a lower tier uh, for, you know, and then kind of discounted as far as their undergrad package. So we, you know, there, there's the overall arcing statement that they want diversity, but the reality is that you're sort of hog tying and kind of hedging the system to create uh, a disproportionality on on the beginning of the process. Okay, uh, wait a minute. So, um, so yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, what John's talking about is the equivalency, uh, like modifiers for uh, GPAs. So, if you went to let's say Harvard, then you're and you had a three Your three is multiplied by like two, right? So because you went to Howard your, your or, or, or 0.2, or, right? Or, but if you went to Howard, then you have a negative multiplier. So your 3.0 is actually only worth like a 2.5. Huh. So and then if you went to 
another like say you went to Norfolk, Norfolk State. It's it's an even lower, you know, no, you know, you're gonna have a lower multiplier or a higher multiplier. So it's gonna end up being even a greater negative when you compare your 3.0 to another school. Okay. So so that automatically drops your GPA when you're applying. Okay. So now you might not meet the qualifications for that school, or you're gonna be put in a batch of applicants that are less qualified. Okay. Uh Dr. Cunningham, you went to Case Western. What did the um, the the student pool look like when it came to that? And I believe were you on the um, admissions board as well? As a dental student in a class of seventy, there were three African American females in our class, and at that point in time, in the entire school, averaging about seventy students per class. The only other African-American was also a female, and she was in the graduating class. Um, well, there was one in the class ahead of us. So we had five black students total in the dental school out of... Close to 300. Roughly, yes, at that time. And then after we had all graduated, it was a number of years, maybe about two years until there were in the class of 2011. I came out in 10. 2011 had no African-American students and then the class of 2012 had two. So when we're looking down the pipeline, I think I think John spoke, hit the nail on the head with aiming to target individuals earlier in the pipeline, middle school and even younger to, to serve as a role model and inspiration to even recognize that dentistry is an option. So as a pediatric dentist, I kind of take that role to heart, knowing that you know, I have the potential to help inspire children to explore or even consider dentistry as a career option. I think one of the other aspects of it, similarly to, to what Gary and John were alluding to, is if you are African-American or Black and you're looking for support, right, understanding that dental profession, professional school and becoming a doctor is extremely time-consuming, rigorous, and a lot of support is needed, emotional, mental, um, financial, having, yeah, financial, <laughs> absolutely. And so that's even a whole different way that the, the conversation can go. But for me, being from the Cleveland area and attending Case Western Reserve University, I actually went to Case or applied to Case, one, because it was home, and two, because at that particular time when I was applying, Case Western had the third highest number of Black faculty members at the university, at the dental school. So whereas I, I wanted to be close to home and figured that I would still have individuals who looked like me, who had experienced what I was going to experience and be able to help me throughout the process was comforting enough for me to still have my my cushion of support and love from my family members and then to know that I had the interest and the guidance from my faculty members. And you said you mentioned something you said look like you, right? You you wanted mm -hmm. to be in an environment that had people that look like you. Do you think that that's why most people apply to uh, historically black colleges? For that comfort oh, level. I, I mean, I, I think could be that wrong. that's a misnomer. Go ahead. I I I, I, if I may, not not to, to cut anybody off, but I think that that's actually a misnomer. I don't believe that it's that most people apply. So we're not, I don't think anybody's referenced that it's, I think the rate of admissions 
for African-American students is, is much higher at those institutions. I think that, the, again, because the, the knowledge that there's a soft space there, it does not correlate to where somebody has applied, right? So I think that if you apply to a multitude of universities, I think that after you've gotten the nodes and the rejections at a multitude of other institutions, I think that that is to some degree where people end up, you know? And so um, it's, and so you, you're going to go where you have the opportunity, um, you know, and so you cannot adjust a faculty. You cannot adjust. You have to have people that are at the table to have the conversation. If you do not have African-American faculty, if you do not have, you cannot, if you do not have faculty, you cannot then end up having a dean of an institution. If you do not have, have had at some point a student body, you then lessen your chances of then having faculty. And so it becomes, you know, again, it's a, it's a trickling down effect. And so the reality of it is, is if you don't open up the, the dam way back earlier in the process, then you'll never have the water travel upstream as high as it is up the mountain that we're talking about. Okay. So um, we talked about, you know, starting them early to try to, like, get them to know that there are black dentists and, and you know, Hispanic dentists and so forth. Uh, most people that apply to dental school have some kind of fa familial connection, right? Do you think that if we were to increase the amount of African-Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans that applied to dental school, that that, by just doing that, they would have somebody in their family that would, uh, um, you know, that that are dentists, then therefore that would actually help the number of uh, applicants and the number of acceptance? Or do you think that there's something way more that we, you know, I'm just oversimplifying it. Um, so let me, and please, please do not let me monopolize. So I have, um, <laughs> Anybody else can jump on too. So yeah, so so I th so I think the thing of it is, is right when we look at anything, what we're in terms of talking about on some levels is resources, right? When we are going after you know the these top tier professions, you're seeking resource. It can it can literally alter the trajectory of of one's family, right? I'm first generation in my family. My wife, who's a physician, is first generation to go to college, much less you know make it into medical school. And so, um, and she actually wanted to go to University of Pittsburgh and stuff. She actually didn't, you know, Howard was, was a backup choice in her second year of applying after she did not, you know, get in, um, and stuff. And so I think that, um, you're fighting for, for, you know, having people in your family. Yes, it puts it on your radar much more intrinsically. It's access. So when we're talking about access to care, and seeing people that look like you, knowing that that's even a possibility for you, you need to to see it as a possibility, and there needs to have a value. I mean, Michelle Obama, uh, in her Netflix special, talks about her guidance counselor saying that that she was not the caliber, did not believe, should not be applying to Princeton University. We all we all know who she is now, but that light could have been extinguished far earlier in her career, such that she would never have been, you know, who it is that that she is currently. Um, you know, the high school that I went to in Prince George's County, you know, I, you know, it was science and tech program, this and stuff. that's what you were there for. And yet you were often dissuaded from certain avenues. So, um, you know, there's a systemic nature in any system, right? Uh, it sets up well, equality to those in power feels like loss. And so, Everybody who's have who is a dentist that has children, you know, you can 
reasonably consider that you would want your child to go into what you're going into, you want a slot for them to be there. So it behooves you to keep what's in place in place so that the opportunity for your child is greater, right? We don't want true equality because it may mean that the, that the hedge system that you came through that you benefited from will not be there for you. And so, you know, there has to be some kind of motivation or incentive to actually try to level the playing field such that there's actually true representation because over 75% of the applications that came in this past year to apply to dental school talk about wanting access to care and helping communities and giving back. And this. But the reality of it is, is less than 5% of people then went into public service dentistry. And so they know what to say. They know what the issue is. The There's a disconnect between what they actually choose to do when they have, have the opportunity on the back end of it. All right, Kyle. Um, from from your point of view, uh, going through pit and all that, so like, what what do you see diversity looking like for you, right? And I mean, and if you can talk about where your practice is and just how diverse, or how diversity is kind of seen in your um, in your town. So s- since we're on a podcast, uh, I am the uh, the white guy on the uh, just to, to let everybody know. Um, I apologize in advance if I say something that is offensive to anybody because it, it's not meant to be. Uh, okay. I uh, it's I grew up in a small town. Uh, the predominantly white population. Um, growing up. Or once I hit college, uh, you know, I I've lived in a lot of places outside of my small town, North Carolina, Montana, uh, Hawaii, and, and other. I, I I've traveled a lot also, so I, I've tried to pick up uh, as much of the local culture as I can anywhere I go, and uh, I find it. Um, interesting, fascinating to learn about different places outside of my comfort zone of where I grew up. Going into dental school at Pitt anyway, it seemed like I I would say, you know, half the population was white, uh, whether male or female. Um, there was a large Asian population and, you know, handful of other minorities whether it be Middle Eastern, African American, um, but the the problem I, I think the problem is uh, it comes down to parents. I, I think uh, giving your your kids the um, I guess the uh, confidence to up, go after something that they think is worth it. That was something my dad always pushed me for is nothing matters except your grades. You do well in school, you can get anywhere in life. So I took that with me the whole way. If it wasn't for that strong parent figure, either my mom or my dad pushing me, I wouldn't have got to where I was. Uh, and that that's just my own personal experience. I don't know about anybody else. Uh, if you want to share how you got to where you are, but that was... That's how I got to where I am. That's actually, so, that's actually, so I'll share. Go ahead. Yeah, Gary, please. And then um, I'll, I'll go after So, that. so I, you know, I'm from Washington, D.C. Um, I actually uh, used to run against John and Track 
in uh, in high school. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's pretty fast. He's a fast guy. He's pretty fast. <laughs> All right. All right. But um, so I grew up in Washington D.C. Um, uh, you know, my father's a physician. Uh, my mother uh, has a master's in early childhood development. Um, you know, all of the uh, professional people I met up through high school were all African-American or of African descent. I didn't even know that a physician could be white until I was in high school. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I ever saw a white physician. Right. So every lawyer, every doctor, every pharmacist, everybody I ever had any contact with were all of some type of African descent. Uh, then, you know, uh, except in, uh, you know, I went to private school my whole life. So in my, uh, what is that? Uh, K through 12, um, there was, a, there weren't that many, uh, African Americans in that school. Uh, but then in my high school, it was like 50%. Right. Then, and, uh, then I went to Howard for undergrad and then I went to Howard for dental school. So I was kind of in a, in that bubble, uh, for, uh, what was that? 28 years, uh, which was not a rep- real representation of what America is, you know, because I was surrounded by all this blackness, you know, all these influential black people, especially in, when you're in DC as well, you know, cause you got, got all these congressmen and and everything else um when i went to pit was the first time i stepped out of my comfort zone so it's kind of similar to kyle's situation but it's like the flip you know um and then you know my parents never um told me you know i'm going to be a dentist or anything they just told me like you can do whatever you want like you're smart you're going to figure it out but just you just got to work hard if you want to get to where you need to go, you need to work hard. And that's pretty much it. Well, so for me, you know, I'm Ghanaian. You know, I, I tell that to everybody that wants to listen that I'm Ghanaian, right? I, I say that. <laughs> Even if you don't where care. Where are you I'm from? Still, I'm from Ghana. You know, oh. and, <laughs> and and one thing that, um, you know, the reason I actually even joined, because whenever you're growing up, uh, you don't go to the dentist unless you're in pain, right? So we really mm-hmm. don't have much interaction with dentists at all. It wasn't until... Um, I fractured my front tooth, came to the U.S., and I went to my dentist, Dr. Goldberg. And if you can, the last name does not speak African-American. You know, he was a Jewish guy, you know, uh, and he was a great guy. And he's the reason why I actually considered dental, dentistry. Didn't think of dentistry at all and didn't know much about dentistry, you know, until then. And so the question a lot of people will say or, or bring up is the fact that, you know, you, you want to have somebody that looks like you in order to motivate you to go into dentistry. And that that wasn't the case for me at all. But do you think that that's something that we need to do? And do you think that us, you know, uh, black dentists are doing a good job or Hispanic dentists are doing a good job of going to those kids and saying, look, you can look like me and be successful and look what I'm driving and so forth, right? Because kids just see the flashiness and they think athletes and so forth, right? Uh, Is it up to us to try to change that narrative? Or like you said, uh, is it the parents that need to just tell and motivate their kids to say, you can do something besides what you see on TV? Well, history repeats itself. So, you know, if the, if the parents didn't have access, then the kids aren't probably going to have access. Like John was saying too, it's like it trickles down. So if the grandparents didn't have access, then the parents don't have access and those kids aren't going to have access either. So I think it is up to us. Right. 
I'm sorry. Go okay. right ahead. Okay. I'll even kind of piggyback off of that. I was, my sister and I are first generation college graduates in our family. And I remember my father saying at some point in time when he was actually the inspiration, he had enlisted in the Air Force in the 70s and went down there, was under the auspices that he could go in and do whatever job he wanted to. And then after he had or as he went down for basic training, they said, I'm sure your recruiter told you that you could sign up for anything. My father wanted to be in the computer sciences. And then the, the leader had pulled down um, a screen and said, these are the vacant positions that we have. Pick one. And my father ended up selecting something in the medical field and ultimately was trained to be an on-the-job dental assistant. And after... Uh, seeing some perio surgeries and some other procedures and ultimately working in the front desk area. When, when I had expressed an interest in dentistry, that's actually when I learned from him that he was, you know, had any sort of dental connection uh, years, decades beforehand. And I remember him telling me, Carrie, you don't have to go and, and be the help. You, you can be the team leader. And he really fostered, from that standpoint, my interest in dentistry and kind of through me that he kind of had some of those dreams of his own realized. And so having that familial encouragement was really helpful, changing the, the, the trajectory of our family tree and, and excelling academically and professionally. My father would also tell me, Carrie, put yourself in a position to make change. And I hold up those words just to my heart and just really try to embody what do I want to do with my time here on earth? How am I going to influence the masses and serve as a resource similarly to the way my father did for me? I mean, he wasn't a, he wasn't a dentist. Uh, he said, well, we don't have the money for you to call, you know, for you to go to college. So, you know, figure it out. And. Luckily, I, I was a scholar in my high school days and had gotten a full scholarship to the University of Pittsburgh and ultimately got a full scholarship with a commitment to community service, ultimately, and through a couple of entities and had dental school paid for. So this is those sorts of stories. And I know I'm, I'm not the only one with those. I really feel like that's part of my responsibility as a dentist and citizen and to, to impart that aspect of my wisdom onto society and the next generation. Okay. So we don't have to, we can break that chain as to lack of resources, limited, limited wherewithal to do what else. And if kids don't realize what the opportunities are, and then they don't know that they can reach for them. So um, that's really important to me to, to, to really harp on when I'm speaking to groups is that you can't reach for what you can't see. All right. Well, yeah. let's talk about this and I'm going to put a lot of this back on, on all of us, right? So let's just say you grew up um, in an underserved area. Why don't you then go back to the underserved area, open your practice, and and and, and begin um, a dental practice there to kind of rep and, and to, to serve that area to help out? Why don't we do more of that? Because then now you're actually answering the question of you're able to now have somebody that the the kids can look at and say, oh, my dentist is this person and they're black or whatever, Hispanic or Native American, and I could be that way too. A lot of us go in open practices in you know, maybe affluent areas when we do the, the um, demographics and say, well, I'm going to make more money here. 
So is it our fault that we're looking at money and, and maybe paying our student loans back and stuff like that versus going and saying, let's do what's best for our community to build our community back up again? I, I'd like to jump in on that first. Um, yeah. I, I think the, the main problem with that is people see uh, it. I think dentistry is a privilege, not a right. I mean, it's a right to uh, be able to go to the hospital and maybe uh, get an infection treated, something like that. But for the most part, as we've talked about before, we have made dentistry more an elective thing because that we're, we're pushing the, the prevention aspect of it. And the practice I bought, it was pretty much the, the welfare office in town. And one of the first things I got rid of whenever I bought the practice was the, the welfare insurance because it just does not pay the bills. And when you buy, the, buy a business, you have to look at the numbers. We all want to help people. That's why a lot of the reason we got into dentistry is to be able to help people. But there's also that as a business owner, uh, you're taking a huge risk and in investing a lot of money into buying a practice, paying for dental school, all of these things. And that reward has to be there. And the way the welfare system is set up, it's it does not provide that reward to you. So to go into an underserved area it's financially a very difficult thing to do unless you have some kind of trust fund or something that that is backing you and letting you be that philanthropist. Right. Um, I'd like to, uh, to, to to kind of speak to this and in, in part circle back and just kind of give a quick synopsis. So I, I'm originally from Colorado. I'm actually biracial. My mother immigrating to the United States and a naturalized citizen, both parents retired Air Force officers and were essentially driven out of the Air Force because they were the first ever interracially married set of officers in the history of the United States Air Force. And this is in 1972, where it was still illegal in 28 states to be interracially married on the books. Um, so the as a result of that, I struggled, what have you, middle school through high school was actually spent with our family living in one room of a motel. Um, there were definitely years that we received government subsidies, uh, you know, uh, milk and cheese and other things of nature and stuff from, from the government. So dentistry did not become a part of my sphere whatsoever until I was 18, uh, having a lot of pain in my mouth. I finally having to go to the dentist learning that I needed all four of my wisdom teeth out. And I also had three severely decayed teeth that needed root canals. The insurance paid for the root canals and the wisdom teeth, but would not pay for the crowns. I then went from 18 to 33 before I was then able to financially myself put crowns on those teeth. Um, so I think that there's a multitude. When we look at dentistry, when we look at access to care when we are looking at resource i think kyle touched upon it um with anything that you invest in whether it's your time or resource you have to have a value for it to then invest in it 
Is there a component of it that has to do with with what you've seen growing up and people taking the time through through parenting and other things and stuff to put something on your radar to to have the value and the time to brush and do self self care? A, a lot of the times, what I tell patients is essentially what we're doing is re learning some helping somebody to learn how to re love themselves for the first time potentially. Taking that time to actually invest and care for yourself is love. It's self-love. And so you're actually, for a lot of people, reinventing what they know love and, and care and self-care to be. It, it has long-term been seen all the way back to the history of, of man. You know, adornment of teeth was, was seen as an extra thing. It was not seen. Now, we know better now, but we've still not caught up with the science to know that the oral systemic connection is there and so we're not really truly preventative models we're we're reactive rather than proactive john give me a second real quick um i I want you to just answer the question of whether or not it's profitable to go to the underserved area because kyle kind of hit it right he said well if i'm taking hmo it's not going to be profitable for my practice it depends on what you're doing okay talk about that now so like for instance, so if, why why don't we have I, more practices that take HMOs or, or or are in the underserved areas? I think that's well, let's just let's just let's just say Medicaid. Okay, go ahead. All right, all right. So if I were to open a Medicaid practice, endodontic Medicaid practice, I would probably do okay. But in in the the state of Texas, in Houston metropolitan area, the compensation rate for a molar root canal is like I think $475, right? That is ridiculously low when like, you know, the the normal UCR is closer to about, you know, $1,300, $1,400. So, you know, you're losing, you know, two thirds of your profits by going to that area. Granted, if you are the owner, you know, you're getting 100% of that fee minus your overhead. So for like endodontics, your overhead's only like 30%. So I'd be getting 70% of that, which is still okay. And it and it would be, I would still make it a lot of money. But if I had a fee for service practice on the other side of town, I could make three times as much money as I could in that underserved area. So so, you know, really, but- I mean, really, what it comes down to is, okay, well, Carrie, let me uh, let me ask you a question. Your office, you're a pediatric dentist. Uh, do you take uh, Medicaid uh, patients? And if so, do you find that to be something that hinders your pro- profitability? I, um, I feel very strongly about being in this position to make change and serving underserved populations. As a pediatric dentist, I do accept all forms of state-funded insurance. And as a new startup, I kind of feel like beggars can't be choosers. So I am certainly not in that position yet to to start, or at least I feel as though I'm not in the position yet to, to start removing myself from participating in a number of insurance programs. But I think kind of what Gary was saying, it depends on what you're doing. Okay. Sure. Could I be, could I not accept any state funded insurance and do a lot better? I think my location would need to be different. I purposely put my practice in my hometown 
in which the mean income is less than 50 grand. So the scholarship that I had in dental school was through the National Health Service Corps. And so I went into dental school knowing I had this passion of serving underserved populations. Praise the Lord, I had a scholarship that and other scholarships that helped pay for dental school so that I could enter the workforce treating individuals who come from disadvantaged, low-income households and not have to worry about what's coming into my pocket in order to to make ends meet. So in this in this case, I I could do I could make a lot more money, but the way that pediatric dentistry is is you you consider in a household for the most part two adults and then possibly a number of children. So pediatric dentistry, while our procedures do not garner a very high amount of revenue per procedure, we tend to be very volume based. So unlike some of my other colleagues who could do very well on very minimal patients, it's not unheard of for dentists, for pediatric dentists to see 20 to 50 patients a day in order to be seen to do just as well as, as other colleagues. So I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's about what your profession is, what your, how you're going about that care. We don't have five and $10,000 comprehensive, uh, or oral rehabilitation cases for our pediatric patients. And one thing I appreciate about being an, a provider on a number of state funded insurance plans, very rarely for children, at least in Northeast Ohio, it's very comprehensive for children's dentistry. So one less thing while, while what I know I'm getting reimbursed is not what I'm ultimately billing. We are spending less time having to chase down money or trying to find parents to pay their aspect of it because we are pediatric dentistry is so comprehensive. And for the most part, a lot of the, the state-funded insurance plans cover everything that we do at 100%. Okay. So it's learning how to do what you do in a timely fashion in order to know what my cutoffs are in order to be uh, successful financially. Okay. Well, let me throw this out there then. So we talk about systemic issues, right? Um, do you think that dentistry not being diverse is a systemic issue, meaning that the system does not allow diversity to happen or occur and what i mean by that is one you're talking about we're graduating with three thousand dollars worth three thousand yeah three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt okay um if you were to set up your practice a brand new practice in the underserved area you wouldn't get paid as well based on what i'm hearing right because if you were to do that you would take more medicaid and so forth and the government does not pay as well so do you think that the system is the reason why we, and then on top of that, if people are in those underserved areas, don't see uh, professionals that look like them, then they will not be able to go into that profession. Are we saying that the system is actually what's broken and not just the individual or the people in dentistry? Is that what we're saying? Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. Because you're, the people you're surrounded with, that's what you know your opportunities are. Uh, my dad was a high school dropout. I, if it wasn't for he, him working his way up through, uh, where he, what he did with his career and letting me know that's possible. Uh, it's the same as a low income area. They're looking around, maybe they're, they're 
parents work for, you know, fast food places and that's all they know. They don't know what, even if they did want to be the doctor, they have no idea what the pathway would be to get to that position or they, uh, it's, uh, yes, I, I, I absolutely think it's a systemic thing because it, it's, you need that support system to guide young minds into saying, this is what you can do. And this is how you can achieve it. This is how I can help you achieve it. Or because like I said, I wouldn't have got where I am without by myself. I had other people helping me along the way. And I need, I think everybody needs that support system, whether it's through the schools, through family, through friends, through, you know, the, the shop owner down, down the street, there has to be that support system available to help pull people out of that poverty system. Does anybody believe it's not the system and it's actually individual base? No, it's the system. <laughs> no. You know, I think anytime you, anytime you make, have somebody, you know, we, you know, potentially all have mortgages or whatever, you know, I think anytime you monetize something, you cannot monetizing healthcare. As soon as we do that, the reality of it is, is there has to be, you know, and, and monetizing the educational system, the reality is these loans have to get paid. And, and so it has to, to have a give back, you know, and when you know that, that what's coming in, the only reason, uh, that we have the comprehensive care that we do for children is because of more recent legislature that created chip programs, that created things. That money, those pools of money were not there 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so those are recent events to try to, level the playing field and, and create some some avenues for care for individuals so those are those are recent systemic changes to even get the system to where it is currently um so yes going into you know avenues of debt and you know it, it's really hard to operate from a servitude from a solely servitude mindset when there's a monetary side of it that has to that you've got to uh to reimburse okay no, it's Good. a capitalistic society right okay well yeah. here's the last question here's the question i really want to know is do you think patients feel more comfortable going to a doctor that looks like them and do you think by that the next question is do you think that we would actually make a better difference for our patients because they would listen to us more or better. For example, if a, if a you know black kid or a black adult were to see their dentist be black, do you think that we would actually be able to do more and do better for them? All right. So I think that um, most patients want to see the best person they can see, right? Like I want I want to go to the best person, but when they're doctor or dentist walks into the room and it, that person looks like them, they feel a comfort and a, and a relief that they would not feel if the person looked different. Okay. Okay. Um, does anybody disagree with that? Okay. We talk, I, go well, ahead. I think, that, I'm sorry. So, so I, <laughs> I gave you a chance and you missed that one. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I just, I'm, I'm, cause I'm trying to like, well, okay. Um, so, so Go, I will tell you just this let's personal pause for experience. A second. Let's pause for a second. Ready? Sure. We, I read somewhere that a lot of doctors have a bias to African Americans uh, when it comes to pain tolerance. Do you think that, again, that's something that would change and we would take pain 
I don't know, uh, if a de- if a patient said, hey, I'm in pain, do you think that we would actually take it more seriously if it were uh, a black dent, a black dentist or a black doctor, you know, uh, uh, treating that patient? Anybody? The biggest babies I know are 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 middle aged African American men, <laughs> like the biggest babies <laughs> in the chair. And that's that's research, right? <laughs> that's 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 off of personal experience. Okay. If there's someone that's going to whimper in the chair, right. it is a 35 year old black male. I actually agree with you, but go ahead. Uh, yeah. So I think I think I think even in that right. Part of that is that you spend so much of time, right? And I was actually thinking about this um, before I ever, you know, knew that we were going to be doing this today. But um, you, I was driving through a, you know, kind of an impoverished community, and you just see so much hardness, right? Just in the presentational walk of people down the street, because you're trying to insulate yourself from whatever's going on in the surrounding environment, from your clothes to the manifestation of the way that you carry yourself and stuff and i you know and i know that i know i know carrying that so you know you know gary can probably attest to this i was very raw and and some would say aggressive um when i got to when i got to <laughs> to, to a therapy session. go ahead <laughs> no but but i think but i think i think but the, but i think walter i think that that's a great a great component of it there has to be therapy for for the atrocity in any relationship where there has been a break in in a relationship you've got to want to have identification of the of the rift and and the issue and a healing process in in of that of that relationship and so multiple states now are actually looking at something called trauma informed care as a component to to try to you know, to, to have people. So dealing with pain, there's a, we, we, a lot of people, when you do not have resource, you wait till it is at a point of no return when you're in a great deal of pain before you go. So now you have directly associated pain with the dentist. The reality is we forget that we were in pain. And, and so we went there to, to deal with the pain. We just associate pain with the institution where it is that we receive the pain. And so there, there tends to be sort of a, a cycling of that because we have the, the extraction or we have the root canal, or we have whatever happened and stuff. If you do not modify the actual care habits and all the sequelae of things that are necessary to avoid it, well, now John, you're back in but, it. But you're not answering the question. The question is, do you think black dentists would actually look to their patient and say, you know what, I believe that you're in pain and I need to treat you? Because the research shows that when a patient uh, that's African-American goes to whoever, a doctor, they're less believed for being in pain. Yes. To that specific thing, do I think that that there's a greater likelihood or a greater possibility of that? Yes. Do I think that most people that are African-American will make a conscious choice. They will go to whoever their insurance sends them to, whereas other patrons will look online and potentially avoid a somebody that does not look like them to get their care, to, to go and, and have their their care delivered. Um, so, you know, I think that... Um, is there that possibility? Yes. You know, I mean, the, the, by and large, I mean, the, 
there, there's a greater kinship in, in UC, whether you're in the hospital systems and stuff, having done anesthesia, you see that there's, you know, to some degree, there's a greater extent of, of care and stuff afforded when a patient comes in looking like somebody else and stuff, whatever. And you hear some of the conversations that are had when the patient does not. I don't know how much that plays into dentistry, but I know in, in healthcare in general, do, do the implicit biases that we have out in society manage their way into the operatories? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, last question, and then we'll kind of wrap it up. But the last question is, do you think that uh, African Americans have to work twice as hard to be, you know, or feel... Ten. Like okay. Ten times. Okay, explain Ten it, times. Gary. All right. So, uh, I, well, the way I was raised is if you want to succeed, you have to be the best. Okay. If you are not the best, then you will be overlooked. So you need to be the sharpest. You need to be the brightest. You need to be the fastest. You need to think the fastest. You need to think so many steps ahead of everyone else so you are prepared for the next step before it comes. And, uh, you know, you got to <laughs> – again, the way the system is set up, you you have to work harder if you – are of if you look brown, you gotta work harder. And is that something that you just ha have noticed, or is that something that we just believe to be true because that's what someone's told us to do? Well, I think mm -hmm. if you look at the numbers, the numbers are speak to that truth. Okay. If you have if you have four point three percent black doctors in the United States, but there's twelve or thirteen percent of the population, then like why why aren't there twelve percent dentists to to represent the population? It doesn't they're not it's not representative. So clearly there is something there that is preventing people to get to that level. Right. And I, so I, I, I go ahead. Yeah, so let's take University of Pittsburgh, for example. Um so four percent of the student body in the dental school African American. When you look at the university as a whole, 5.5%. Um, now, when you look at that 5.5% of the entire student body, there's 550 student athletes on campus, right? They're among 20 different sports. Now, there's only two sports that bring in income that actually pay for themselves and those other athlete, athletic programs. Women's volleyball. <laughs> you know, it. You, know it. you already know. Men's basketball and right. football, right. right? On those teams for football, 78% African-American. Men's basketball, 87% African-American. So we don't have a recruitment issue in this country. And we want to recruit for what we have a value for, we will recruit. So when you are 5.5%, but over 50% of those students that are on that university campus are there for their body, not there for their mind. Mm -hmm. then the reality of it is, is now you know that you cannot, you're not, you're not developing them to the matriculate on to the university settings. Okay. You're not developing them to, to then go on into the dental schools and the medical schools. They're underrepresented at that level. And so the reality of it is, is you didn't bring them there to help them to, to, to move on into those realms. You brought them there to, pick the cotton okay. of today okay. okay well well okay let, let me be let me be play the devil's advocate i feel like that's what i've been doing the whole time um 
Kyle, did you ever feel like, man, I don't have to work that hard at all in dental school? No, okay. I, I was I was waiting for my chance to disagree. With Gary. <laughs> right, that's what I'm saying. So, so no, right. I, I I sat in a library twelve hours a day, seven okay. days a week. You know, I, I worked just as hard as anybody else. I the way I look at it is these are your numbers on paper. This is what your test score are test scores are. And I worked really hard for where I, I, I mean, I don't think I could have worked 10 times harder. Uh, I, I know people that, you know, work just as hard as me, if not harder, but you know, maybe they just weren't good test takers and they didn't make it through the whole process. Uh, there, maybe they weren't, uh, I mean, there, there's all kind of different issues, but no, I, I absolutely think I worked extremely hard to get to where I was. So I wasn't saying that, that you didn't work hard. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're a dentist, yeah. you work hard. Right. <laughs> so, That's not what I was saying. Okay, so is it like, is it just a perception of having to prove yourself more as an African-American doctor or a student? Yeah, I think that's more of the of what I was alluding to. Okay. There, there's in the educational system, you can actually look up studies that show that the testing systems that we have actually are inherently biased. The way they, the questions are, you, you, if you have come through an educational system where you have taught to be, to take a test, then you are prepared, much greater prepared at that level. So from, from kindergarten, you can actually see a gap. Right, and trajectory modifying and stuff. There's actually a phenomenon in the in the elementary school system called the preschool to prison pipeline. You can actually check and track the trajectory. African American males are three in the elementary school setting are three times more likely to be suspended. Right, and so it starts it starts from inception. There's also a process called adultification that you can look up that shows that that we imbue adult qualities onto African-American male and female children at earlier ages. We then view them with, with adult level reasoning, understanding. That's why that two juveniles that will go for the same offense, 70% of the time, the African-American uh, child will not be seen as a child, but as an adult. Whereas we can have grown men that are of Caucasian descent being said, oh, he's just boys, but we'll be boys and, and things of that nature and stuff. So the mindset, the empathy, right? And so there is there are hard numbers, yes, and that is a component of it, but there are several things that are done throughout the process that that, that fall under empathy and and you know dentistry is one of those fields where in the educational process a lot of it has to do with um, is subjective, right? It's not purely 100% objective. And so when we look at financial gaps and things of nature, somebody who is, is struggling financially at home and, and having the challenges and things of, you know, and potentially working part-time jobs and things of nature and stuff as they're going through the undergrad process to, to even be present, it's a different experience in what they're able to spend their time on and how, how many hours they're able to dedicate towards studying and stuff, whatever. You know, is is a it's a it can be a much different experience. Okay. And well, so again, perception well, is yeah. You know, the some of the perceptions are 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 there, unfortunately. And okay. So some, like, Wait a minute. Let me let me ask you then. Okay. So you said that there is an implicit bias with test taking and so forth. Then how did how did we? And when I say we, I'm talking about yourself, uh, Doctor Cunningham. How do we get past that? How do we succeed? 
we because we, we I mean clearly we're all dentists so we succeeded right because we work ten times harder okay okay thanks for bringing that full circle right so so the question i have is so what how do we translate that to the future how do we okay so we know that there is a key to success what do we need to do to to bring up uh the, the the youth so that they could also, so more of them can succeed and not think itself, themselves as athletes. Dr. Cunningham, I want to ask you that because you're actually with the ADA and, and you know, you're, you're the first president of your local ADA chapter, correct? Love, first black female president. Okay, uh, even better. You did a double. That's awesome. So so talk about mm-hmm. that. Like, what, what can you do to bring up, uh, you know, minorities through the system, more of them, right? So that they represent the the 13%. I think it's, I don't have the answer. Um, I I think it's a collaborative effort. Obviously, as an individual, I could do what I can do to serve as a role model and make sure that I'm present in as many sorts of activities as I can that will promote dentistry, oral health hygiene, put myself in a position for our youth to see me. there's an elementary school in our community that has asked me to be their Black History Month keynote speaker for their assembly uh, for the past couple of years. And that's been beneficial because a lot of those kids who are in that in that auditorium are patients of mine. And I just want to help to reinforce that aspect. I mean, given our nation's uh, the turmoil that's taking place in, in our nation right now. It's, I mean, diversity is, is on the desk of so many people and, and our dental society included and looking to figure out how we can increase and enhance diversity as healthcare professionals anyway, just to shed a positive light on the profession in and of itself is really key to overall whomever we attract. Of course, if we have a greater presence in, say, low-income areas or areas in which there's there's more uh, people of color, then the better off we can be, no matter the race, if you're a dentist in the area where there may very well be limited access to care, then that may very well increase the likelihood of students in that environment being exposed to dentistry and then henceforth consider dentistry as a future career option. Uh, I think we could even take it a step further as once you open your yourself to being a mentor and serving in different roles, either as an alumnus of your, your whichever level of institution from either high school to undergraduate or even at your dental school institution, serving as a member of the alumni board of directors or being a part of the alumni association that connects with students who may very well share an interest or have an interest in the oral health care profession. And being able to, again, regardless of the color of the student, but to be there to help guide them. As we were saying earlier, we succeeded because we worked hard, 10 times harder as well. And so, too, what we don't want to do is to give this false vision that it's easy to become a dentist. I often say, hey, if it was easy, then everyone would be doing it. But obviously, everyone's not a dentist. So really being realistic about what the educational uh, experience entails and and how attention to detail and time management and also varying 
your um your experiences because all work and no play can 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 have deleterious impact on one's ability to succeed and take pride in their work if they don't have a decent work life balance to to experience day in and day out okay well i mean let's just wrap it up here um but do we think that there is anything that we can actually do in dentistry to increase this number of um, minority? And and then I guess a follow up would to that would be, is it just a mindset mindset shift that needs to happen in order for us to see that growth of uh, minorities in dentistry? And we'll start uh, with uh, Dr. Dennis, and then we'll go Dr. Uh, Dumpert, and then John, Dr. Poe. Uh, I think it's again. I think it's just access. Uh, and I don't think, and and I don't think it's has to again uh, related to race. I think it's just any underserved community. Yeah. You know, if if you want people coming out of that community being dentists, then they need to see dentists. So I think it's just access. Doctor Dumpert, I get my my question would be the uh, dental school is one of the hardest professions to get into. I, I, I believe that uh, the acceptance rate into dental school for the general application pool is, uh, I, I think there's more people applying and getting rejected from dental school than med medical school now, uh, because it is a, a fantastic profession to be in. So I, I guess one of my questions is, uh, do, is it, Put on the school to accept, you know, the best people uh, based on numbers. It, we only are going to accept the best candidate, but define what the best candidate is. Is the best candidate the, is defined as the person who does the best on standardized tests? And that, if that's the definition of the best candidate, I think that's completely wrong because this is a people profession. We're not where we have to be able to empathize with people. We have to be able to relate to people. We have to be able to sell what we think is best to that patient for them to say yes. So I don't think that it, what your numbers, what your test grades are makes you the best candidate. It's, uh, you know, I was always under the impression you don't want to be the, the best person in the class. You don't want to be in the top 10. You don't want to be in the bottom 10. You want to be in that middle 50 because those are the people that uh, are able to balance school life and work life and personal life. Right. And with it, it, it's hard to uh, from the school's aspect, if that's where the problem is with who they're accepting. It's hard to have a, a personal interview with however many people are applying to their school. There has to be way to a way to cut that application pool down because there is just a sheer volume of people applying to it. Now, coming back to uh, what Gary said, you have to if you want people to work in underserved areas, you have to bring. Uh, accept people in the dental school from underserved areas because me coming from small town Pennsylvania there is not a chance that I'm going to go set up a practice in downtown Philadelphia it's just not going to happen if you want somebody to work in downtown Philadelphia you have to accept more people from you know 
low income, underserved uh, people that grew up there and are comfortable being there. I'm not comfortable being in yeah, in any city, regardless of it's a high income area or a low income area. That's just not where I am, where I'm comfortable. That's why I'm back in small town America. So it, it has to be uh, you have to set up a system that empowers or gives the support for whatever area is experiencing uh, the shortage of dentistry that you're trying to attract. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Poe, you're, you're last. You're good to go. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, Dr. Dumpert uh, really kind of hit the nail on the head uh, is that we're, you know, we are creatures of habit and we're going, we all started with an impassioned care uh, for a community, for a community and a community that we came from. And so it's oft that you're, you know, you see it in sports and image sports imitates life. You know, a lot of people would, would relish playing for their hometown team, wherever they grew up and, and kind of going back and, and being able to, uh, represent and perform in front of the people that it is that they grew up with. Um, and I think that, that, you know, we're, we're just as, as honorable about that. You know, I think if you're, you know, trying to get me to go to the outskirts in Maine, as profitable as that may be, is probably going to be a bit of a hard sell. Um, more to my wife than myself, but, um, <laughs> but, 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 um, you know, and so I think the thing of it is we have to, you know, I think, you know, in the old school days, dentistry was probably one of those things like, like being a barber or whatever, where you were an apprenticeship and kind of, you know, taking on, you know, it, it's really a tactile and, you know, hand skills and things of nature and stuff. So I don't think that it's something that that's exceptionally well defined by, you know, I've looked in a lot of patients' mouths and there was never a scan drawn, you know, and so I think that, <laughs> <laughs> So I think that I think I think that we need some some practical approaches to 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 it that that aren't governed by by pure academia. And I think that that you know I think that you know I think that the beauty of of having these mediums and in those schools in general is that for for a lot of people it may be the first time experiencing and interacting and kind of having some of those uh relationships with people that that look different and, and from very backgrounds and ethnicities and what have you and stuff and so i think we all grow from those but it's a, such a very unique microcosm that really does not translate back into the real world and so you know we have these unique opportunities where a lot of people become open because we've had the opportunity and the experience and then we go back out into the rest of America, you know, and so I think that, you know, I think, you know, again, just just creating pathways for diversity inherent in the system to, you know, to have people of, of varied environments to go back into those environments is going to be a critical component if we're ever going to truly resolve it. Hmm. Okay, so we spent about an hour uh, and we still didn't come up with an answer. Right, <laughs> I, mean, I can I can honestly say that that's what happened. We came up with a lot of solution. We can we can kind of get an idea that the system is broken in a way, but we just don't know how can we fix the system. I mean, it's I think we did so. I mean, it's the it's 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 the same answer it's always been. Right, it's access. Okay, you could you could have asked this question in 1972, and it it was the same answer. Okay. Access. Okay, 
And what what about the argument that uh, well, just because you bring someone dental school doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna pass and graduate dental school, right? We can put as many people in dental school as possible, but we need a way. We need people that are actually gonna be able to matriculate through dental school and are smart enough to go through dental school because dental school is not easy, from what I remember. Right. right. So do we, do we, do I don't we know about your dental school. Can we lower the standard I'm... just to make sure that the numbers fit. Well, how are like, go ahead, John. I think so. I think the thing of it is, you know, I think we've all been enough uh, CEUs and stuff, whatever, that we think we've been left scratching our heads. Like, how did this individual graduate dental school? And stuff? <laughs> um, so, so smart is a relative term. Right. Um, right. And so I think that uh, there's a functional indices that you think you need to have within dentistry and stuff, whatever. And, and just, you know, the, the people that have the highest grades or did the best on the exams weren't weren't the ones who were always bright shining stars in the clinic environment and so i think that you know saying i coach for alabama and i'm the best coach in the world because i get all of the best players it doesn't define who i am as a coach it just says just says that i've been great at getting exceptional players in right good coaching is taking a b or c you know academic and taking their their talent and their abilities and honing the side of them that may be deficient. And I think that that setting up a school environment to to actually improve people's weaknesses and prepare them. You can teach somebody the knowledge and the academia. You want somebody that's close enough that I think it gives you the something to work with there, knowing that you're gonna pick up all the clinical aspects. I think it I think it I personally feel like, and again, maybe this is just because of my bias, because of, of my pathway into dental school, I think it would be easier to take people that had functional aptitude and the skills that are required and the personal ability and the hand skills and actually teach them the academia than it would be to take somebody who's a great at, at doing the book work and teaching them the clinic, clinical skills that are necessary. Okay, Gary, wrap it up. Any input? Me? Uh, Gary. Oh, me. Um, I I think I think um, once you know better, you do better. That was deep. That I think we're gonna. End that was on that. deep and somehow shallow at the same time. <laughs> you know, we're gonna end on that note. Um, just because I can't, I can't follow that up at all. That was ridiculous. <laughs> We we would literally Gary, you just made made us waste a whole hour now. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> now, thank you guys for coming on. Really appreciate this. Uh, I think this conversation can continue for a long time, but we'll go ahead and end it here. And uh, we'll just if you know better, you do better. Good. All right, Dean. <laughs> thank you guys. Thank you for listening to Tooth Be Told. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at real dentist with an s at gmail dot com. That's real dentist r e a l dentist with an s at gmail.com remember the opinions on this podcast are just that our professional opinions the final decision about your health should be made by you and a trusted dental professional